Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, how you doing? Thanks for listening. You know, if you like the show, we hope you'll consider giving us a rating, even better, a review at Apple Podcasts. That helps us spread the word. You can also follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. This is episode number 93 of The Next Track. Now, conventionally... We like to talk about music stuff, but we also know that uh, a lot of music listeners are also voice listeners. I mean, you are listening to a voice podcast right now, but you, like us, may also be an audiobook listener. Well, if you're a fan of audiobooks, we have a real special guest today. Simon Vance is probably one of the most well-known and prolific audiobook narrators. He's recorded hundreds of books over the years and won numerous audiobook awards, Simon, it's great to have you with us, and it is a pleasure to meet you. Oh, it's a, it's a great pleasure, and it's lovely to meet you guys. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to make your acquaintance, Simon. I've been listening to your audiobooks for at least a dozen years, if not longer. I've heard your voice in my head countless hours. I have to say, you certainly look taller in real life. We're doing this on video. You look taller in real life than you sound on the audiobooks. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> <laughs> According to your website, you've recorded some 700 audiobooks. How long have you been doing this? Oh, the, the number thing is weird. Everybody, uh, yeah, I, 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 I go up now. It must be beyond 800 or more. I've, it's, my history goes back quite a few years. I suppose the first time I recorded an audio book as such was for the blind in London. I was at the BBC. Um, I was a radio newsreader presenter on Radio 4 in the 80s. And when I went to London, I didn't know anybody. They did odd shifts. I had a lot of spare time during the week. You know, I was working weekends. And I knew a friend who'd done books for the blind at the RNIB, Talking Book Service. And I thought, well, that sounds like fun. I like reading. And I went in there and I got a place there and I went for once a week for about eight years and recorded for two or three hours an afternoon. Um, then I left London in 92. I emigrated to California to become a thespian full time. I always had a, a thing about acting and doing stage work and stuff. And, and my then wife, who became my wife, was American. So we came over to California. Uh, I did theatre, but I was looking for something else. And a friend of a friend said, oh, you know, there's uh, there's these uh, audiobooks they do commercially now. And I thought, oh, well, I've, I've recorded books. I think I know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> and I just signed up with Blackstone Audiobooks in Oregon. Um, and uh, that was the beginning of it in 1992. And uh, so I've been doing them commercially for 25, 26 years. But really, the first time I sat in front of a microphone and recorded a book and sat there for, you know, the two hours or three hours it takes... It was uh, back in about 1983. Do you remember the first book you recorded for Blackstone? Yes, but uh, it was it was a P.G. Woodhouse book. But I honestly can't remember which one it was. I do remember where I, I was set up. We were in a house. We were renting a house in Concord, in, in Walnut Creek in California. And it was, I set up in the corner of the garage with a two-deck cassette machine because it, I could stop and start very easily. And um, I had moving blankets hanging up around me in the corner of the garage with moving blankets. And I got a microphone, a Shure microphone that cost about $50. And I can't remember the rest of the gear, but it was a, 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 a it, it went into thing. And I, so you'd record if you made a mistake, you stopped. I ran the tape back, listened for the paragraph, stopped at the paragraph and then started recording. 
Uh, so it was very early, what they call punch and roll in the business. So um, punch and roll. Yeah, but that was that, that was the early. That was the first the first step in my long and glorious career was in a garage in Walnut Creek. So so you started out as a garage reader, like some rock bands start out as garage <laughs> bands. You were like a garage reader. When you write your memoirs, you could say that memoirs of a garage reader. Well, it's like all the best things start in garages. Didn't Hewlett Packard start in a garage somewhere? Yeah. So. yeah, and even Apple did originally. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. So we're all, you know, I'm in with them. <laughs> so as we're talking, we can see that you're in your home studio. Have you always worked at home or have you ever gone into actual studios owned by these audiobook companies to record? Yeah, it's tied up with a history of audiobooks. In the early days when I started, there were a few people who recorded at home. Most of commercial, most commercial recording of audiobooks was done in, in their studios in New York or Los Angeles. That's where you had to be if you wanted to do big-time audiobook recording. And, and that was the days when they'd buy in uh, famous actors for many, many thousands of dollars. They never made any money on the things. But on the side, there were smaller companies like Blackstone Audiobooks, the first people I worked for, who did employ home narrators. And there were a few of us, not many of us. Um, because most of the big publishers didn't want to look at it. But slowly over the years, it became uh, more accepted. Around about the time when the business expanded, 2001, you know, the introduction of the um, iPhone, the iPod, rather, made MP3 listening much more uh, acceptable or easy. That was when we home narrators started garnering attention, and I got called into New York a few times. I'd fly cross-country usually paid for by myself, uh, which was very annoying. But sometimes they put me up in a hotel or something for a week or so. Uh, it only happened two or three times because they they were coming around to the idea of home narrators. And I went in, I know, with one particular publisher. She sat there, she was listening to me, uh, the director was listening to me going, hmm, so I hear you record at home. You're a very good self-director. I think we'll employ you at home from now on. Because, of course, if you go into a studio, you've got the engineer, you've got the studio time, you've got everything else, and, and sure. uh, so many more people. Whereas sitting at home, it's just me on my own. And they probably pay you the same either way, so they end up saving money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sadly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so you have you have witnessed the growth of audiobooks from an occasional recording on cassettes back in, in the day, even though they existed before that on records. But you, you've watched as it's gone from mostly for blind people or people who can't see very well to what's truly a literary phenomenon now. And, of course, the growth of digital is what changed this. How have you experienced this? Uh, basically starting out in, in a genre that was relatively niche and now in a genre that's extremely important in book publishing? Well, it, it, it's really the the way the, the the amount of work changed over the years is probably the most noticeable um, thing to me because in the early days I I was working for a couple of publishers. Well, Blackstone Audiobooks initially and then Books on Tape took me on. Books on Tape became Random House and then Penguin Random House. Um, and I did... I. I'd have it was it was a fill-in job. It was like my part-time job because I was an actor. Uh, and in fact, in the early days, I used a different name with each company because that was apparently the standard. Companies like to have their own stable of talent, and they didn't mind you working for someone else, but just use a different name. And I used that, and I, my justification at the time was because I'm wanting to be an actor, and I might become famous as Simon Vance, the actor. And I didn't know if I sucked as an audiobook narrator, so I didn't want to have audiobook narrating spoiling right. my my you know my wonderful experience on stage. 
of course, the reverse happened. I did very little stage work, but um, the audiobooks took off. But there are two names out there, Robert Whitfield and Richard Matthews. I remember Whitfield. I, I remember I, I, for, for many years I reviewed audiobooks for Audiophile magazine. I'll put a link in the show notes. And I remember coming across a Robert Whitfield recording and thinking, well, that sounds like Simon Vance. And it was. And I may have even emailed you at the time to ask you about that. And, and I think you replied saying, yes, we use different names at times. But how long has it been now that you've only been using your real name? Oh, since about 2002 or three, I think. I, I, a couple, I started winning earphone awards back in 1999, 2000. They're, they're from Audiophile magazine. And they, every month they issue quite a few, 15 or so, um, 10 or 15 maybe, maybe fewer than that. But they're like books of the month. They're for excellence in recording. But beyond that, there are the audios, which they call they talk about as the, the Oscars of the audiobook industry. And I started getting nominations. And I thought, oh, I'd like to have my own name back into these things. And other publishers started to come to me. Tantor was a new publisher, and they came to me. And then the other bigger publishers started coming to me. And I thought, well, I'm going to use my own name. And I, in fact, Blackstone went back and changed my name on a lot of things. So, you know, you can still track me down on some of the early stuff. But to go back to how the business changed, I was doing, uh, you know, a couple of books a month, and it was filling in. And then it was around that 2001 time when the iPod was introduced, suddenly the books started rolling in. And around um, 2005, I stopped doing theatre in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is where I was living at the time. I just made a decision to stop doing it because the audiobooks filled all my time. And at the time, I was also, I think I went to New York one more time, but I went to Seattle and recorded some BBC Audiobooks America with a director up there. And, and that would interrupt any kind of rehearsal process for theatre. So, and I was making more money. Um, you know, or steady. I was making a steady income with with audiobooks. Right, because theatre acting is always a bit precarious. It's a bit precarious, and it doesn't pay a lot, and it takes up an awful lot of time, and it's the evenings, and it's the weekends. Yeah. Whereas I sit at home, I make my own hours. I could I could work at four in the morning, or four a.m., or or four p.m., or eight p.m., or you know, any time of day, and I can go out and do the shopping when I want, and it's it's up to me. And I've always rather liked that work style. But that was when it changed around 2001, 2002, 2005, full time. There was some disruption uh, when, you know, after the expansion with Audible was bought by Amazon, it brought in a whole lot more narrators into the business. And uh, the cream rose to the top eventually. And we have so many more. There's still only so many books being recorded. So I'm not quite as busy as I was, say, 10 years ago. But that suits me in a way because I moved to L.A. and I'm actually expanding back into what I wanted to do in the first place, which is do some uh, TV film acting. So uh, that's where I'm working on uh, what I'm working on now and enjoying doing the audiobooks, uh, not on the side. It's still my major, um, major job, but uh, there's more balance than there was 10 years ago, I think. But when I look at Audible, it seems that all the big new books are out in audiobook versions, whereas 10 years ago that wasn't the case. It seems like there's far more audiobooks. Well, that's actually a good point. Yes, that's another way. The big difference, another big difference from 20 years ago was that the, the, the library market was the big motivator back in the day. That's the main, that was the main customer for smaller companies like Blackstone Audiobooks and so on. They produce for libraries. And it, that is one of the transitions. And, and I used to say, and well, I do say this now, it, I, I used to love 95, 98% of the books I narrated because they were all classics. That's when I did all the Dickens books and uh, a lot of the, the older um, uh, classic books. Um, 
what happens now is just about if anything gets published, anything's being published in in on paper, it's going to be made into an audiobook. And there's a lot of not very good stuff that's available. <laughs> this is going to sound elitist, but um, where I used to like 95%, now I probably really enjoy 50%. And there's 50% of it. You know, it, it's it's writing. It has an audience, and it's it's like as an actor. You know, you don't judge the character. You 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 have to be in love with what you're doing. And I do love, I I, I admire authors tremendously. Any author who's able to sit down and write, you know, thirty, forty, fifty, a hundred and fifty thousand words. But um, I have to say, it, I'm doing a lot more stuff that doesn't really appeal to me. Stuff I wouldn't necessarily pull down off a shelf to read naturally. That's that's one of the changes. But it's the nature of the job. I, it, it was good for me at the time. I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, now it's, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have quite that uh, choice that I had before. That's interesting. It's a question I was going to ask. Do you choose to record only books that you like, or do you just do what you can do because it's offered to you and you've got space to record it? Yeah, it's pretty much I do what I'm, I'm given. Um, there was a time when I was booked out. I used to be booked like three or four months ahead. I'd have a full schedule, and I could even suggest books. I know I suggested the Gormenghask trilogy to to uh, Blackstone because I'd always wanted to do that. Um, there's only one occasion. Oh, a couple of occasions I've turned down books. Um, one was because it was very political, and I didn't appreciate its its uh, direction. Um, and the other time was, uh, funnily enough, actually, I talk about this. I, I talked to the publisher and said, I don't really enjoy this writer. I'd rather not do any more of their books. They're not, they're not very um, enriching, <laughs> as it were. I'm wondering if that's important because they use your name in the marketing of the books. Um, for instance, I was looking. I, I'm pretty sure I heard you do uh, Goldfinger uh, many years ago. You did a lot of the Ian Fleming books, and when I went to look it up today. It's Ian Fleming, Goldfinger, Simon Vance. And it's like your name is it's associated with the audiobook. So I'm wondering if, you know, how are they deciding, well, we want to use Simon because he's marketable for this kind of read? Or if it's just, you know, how, how, do, they, uh, how do they approach that? Uh, I think that's more of a question for the publisher, I think. Uh, yeah. I, don't, yeah. I don't know. I mean, interesting that you could find that uh, Goldfinger narrated by me because that's one of the series of books that uh, Blackstone lost the rights for because they've now got a lot of, if you go to Audible, I don't think you can find them. One of the other series that I absolutely adored doing, and it was one of the first ones that brought me in a lot of fan mail, was the Aubrey Maturin series, Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander series, 21 books. Fantastic. I loved them, and I did a good job. But there was a, a series by Patrick Tull. He'd narrated them, a narrator in, on the East Coast who's, who died a few years ago. But um, they were done by recorded books, and there was a a rights battle over them a few years ago and recorded books won that one and my books are no longer available on audible yeah i was looking for them today on audible uk i knew you had done them in the past and i couldn't find them there are a couple of interesting things i have your i still have your recording of peter Ackroyd's shakespeare biography and that's no longer sold there's a version read by simon callow in four parts which is not the entire book i think yours is 18 or 20 hours and his altogether is about 12 hours. So they split it up into four because four credits instead of one, the way Audible works. And 
frankly, Simon Cowell may be a good actor, but he's not a good narrator of audiobooks. In fact, it doesn't sound, it sounds like he recorded it in a garage. Wow, that's surprising. Yes, I mean, that's happened. Uh, my first recording of Treasure Island was one of the first Audi nominations I got years ago. It was for books on tape. Um, then later on, Random House had Alfred Molina record it, and that became an Audi winner. And mine, probably because it's the same company, because there are multiple issues of, of so many books, but they took mine off, and oh. you can't find my initial recording of Treasure Island. I've done it since for another publisher, I, th I think. But, um, yeah, if they do things like that, and it's, it's, it's annoying because... Um, one, it affects my book count, you know, when you say how many books I've done. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but but um, just from the other point is that, that they, they were good recordings. The, the Patrick O'Brien books particularly were good recordings. And uh, it's annoying that they're not available to the wider public. Yeah, and it's, and it's a body of work that if you appreciated it, you've probably put more into it than other books you're recording now that you maybe don't like. Yeah, possibly. Uh, well, I would imagine that if you were interested in, in digging up some old Simon Vance, some classic Simon Vance, you'd could do some sleuthing at a local library. True. Oh, yeah. Um, because just because the publisher pulled the book doesn't mean that the library is going to pull it from their inventory. Ab absolutely. They, they certainly are available out there. And I know there's a Patrick O'Brien um, group on Facebook, and, and they often have little battles about which is better, Patrick Tull or Simon Vance. <laughs> but they are still available. I've got a little collection of my own, but I can't obviously do anything with them because of rights. Yeah. So I contacted you a few weeks ago to invite you on the show in part because I've been listening to your recording of Anthony Pohl's A Dance to the Music of Time. And this is fascinating. It, it's I, I didn't know these books before. I only started reading them a few months ago. In fact, I bought the Kindle versions, then I bought the Audible versions. Unfortunately, they don't sync the way some do. So I've been going sort of one chapter on the Kindle, one chapter in the audiobook. And what I find really interesting is the way you managed to create so many diverse voices for the characters. Yes, well, I, uh, that's something I've been known for uh, with the Dickens books particularly as well. There are so many different voices. Uh, the, the question of how much character you put into a book is an interesting one. When I started doing Books for the Blind um, in London, we'd have a tea break in the middle of the afternoon. We'd sit there, a group of actors, and there would be Radio 3 announcers, uh, uh, other BBC station announcers. There'd be actors from the West End sitting there. And there was one fellow I particularly remember who insisted you didn't put any kind of character into the book at all. You read it's just the words, you know, just the facts, ma'am. That's all you did. Yeah. I, I think it's fair to say that the uh, the, the characterful um, argument is, is has won. I think it's necessary in a book to put some life into it to differentiate the characters. Now, how far you go, I think, depends on the quality of... Uh, uh, not the quality. depends on the kind of book it is because you don't want it to be distracting. Sometimes you just want it to be able to hint at the different people who are speaking because authors don't always say he said, she said, and shouldn't. Um, but sometimes with a page of dialogue, you can get lost <laughs> and you need to be able to differentiate that. Um I know there's Jim Dale is another narrator, a very famous narrator in, in New York, very famous actor in England from the 60s, the Carry On Movers and so on. He's, he's best known over in, in America for the Harry Potters that uh, Stephen Fry did in England. Jim Dale did them over here. He pre-plans his characters. He will sit there and he'll have an assistant making notes and he'll record stuff and he'll say, let's try this voice, let's try this voice, which is great. And I think he's got the Guinness World Record for the number of different voices in a single book. I tend to be a little more seat-of-my-pants stuff and I will create the character as I as it comes to me on the page. 
Um, and if it doesn't work, because, of course, I'm sitting here alone, I don't have an engineer and a director to pay, I can stop and go back and redo stuff, which I do occasionally. But for the most part, I will get the sense of the book, how it feels, and when a character speaks, I will uh, I will somehow inhabit that character. There's one reason why I love Dickens. In a lot of cases with Dickens, he will spend a paragraph describing the character as he walks into the room before he even says a word. And even the name of the character will often describe the personality and so on and so it was like uh, i was able to just jump in using that description and that that's sort of what i do with all books to differentiate the characters and to to bring them to life that's my my uh i suppose my acting experience oh well, you know i said i've said it on my website i think back in the mid 60s my dad bought me a reel to reel tape recorder i think the labor government was bringing in a value added tax or something he ran out and bought this thing and he gave it to me and i I started making silly voices into it, recording silly voices, and I never stopped. I used to do that with a friend. We'd sit there and play around, and uh, that was my early microphone experience. Well, I find it in, in a book like this, this poll, which is, which is a series of, of 12 novels, I, I guess it's about 85 hours altogether, there's no other way to keep track of the characters unless you have those diverse voices. And, and frankly, the voice that you got for Widmerpool is just perfect. That's that just sounds like what that character would speak. Well, that's great. I, I do. There, there's an element of cheating with some things like that, in that I will look at if there are other versions out there, and there was the TV series, right, with Simon Russell Beale as Widmer Poole. So I had a a vision in my head, and often with a character, if even if there is or there isn't, I will choose a known person, an actor or something, to inhabit that character in my mind. And I'm not, an, I'm not a mimic. I, I won't, you know, if I decide something's going to have a, uh, an Alec Guinness voice, I will do my Alec Guinness voice, and uh, nobody's going to say, oh, that sounds like Alec Guinness. But it, it helps to fix the character in my head. So when you've got a book that's 85 hours long, I see that, oh, there's, there's Alec Guinness again. That's my character. Or if it is Simon Russell Beale, I go, oh, there's Simon Russell Beale. So, you know, if the guy doesn't speak for, for 25 chapters and he pops up again, I go, oh, that's my Simon Russell Beale. So that's that's the way I retain it. And, and I think uh, using the guidance perhaps of, you know, plays I've seen, movies I've seen, TV shows I've seen, I, I will, you know, incorporate those characters. How long does it take to record something that long? How many usable hours do you get in a, in a day of recording? Uh, it varies. I, I, I schedule a couple of two to three hours finished hours a day. Actually, that's comfortable. That's three hours a day finished hours, um, and that's comfortable. Two hours is a is a really nice comfortable right. schedule. And then um, I have done four hours before now, or, or even more to get finished over a weekend if something I, I hit a deadline. Just to expand on that, uh, you know, you've got a lot of prep on the book. You have to pre-read the book. Uh, depending on the book itself, that varies how much detail you have to go into, how much research you have to do on names, pronunciations, pre-planning. And then, of course, the method I use to record means I go back over the file briefly afterwards, after I've recorded. I'll go back in and edit. And then I'll send it off to the publisher, who, who then does the QC and proofing, and I'll get corrections and so on and so forth. But yeah, two to three hours, finished hours a day. So you could do a 10 to 15 hour book a week. I think, I mean, Dance to the Music of Time was, I think, yes, about 80 something hours. I would say a good month or so. Last year, no, two years ago now, I recorded Alan Moore's Jerusalem. Alan Moore of... Um, uh, graphic novels. Yeah, graphic novels. Yeah. And uh, 
he did this book that was Jerusalem and it was 60 hours long. I did that in a month. I took the month of June to do that. So okay. I, I can't remember exactly. I probably got it in my calendar somewhere how long I took on Darts to the Music of Time, but I would think something like four, five, six weeks. You have done a lot of long books and series the Anthony Pole, the Jerusalem. You've done a number of Anthony Trollope books. You've done the complete Sherlock Holmes, about 58 hours, James Bond, the Dune series, but these are multiple narrators. And Hilary Mantle's Wolf Hall, Bring Up the Bodies, which aren't that long, but they're still 15, 18 hours each. D do you like doing long books more? Is, is there the same amount of preparation for a long book as a short book that makes a long book easier to do over time? Yeah, I, I've not really thought about that. It, it, it's I, I don't know that length matters so much as what the book's about. You know, and, and just to correct something, Hilary Mantel, I've just did bring up the bodies. It was a different Simon, I think, did the first okay. Wolf Hall. Um, I keep nudging my publisher saying, has Hilary Mantel written the third part yet? <laughs> Simon Slater did the first one. Yes. That's it. Yes. She's working on a third part. Oh, yeah. I've been working on it for years. And it's like, please, yeah, please write it because I loved, I loved bringing out the bodies. But to answer your question about the prep, um, there is a sense where it's, it becomes easier over time. With, when you've got a series, once you've done the first book, you know, you know who they are. You also, the thing is the style of the writing. That's something you, you become used to. You, begin, you, you start to absorb, right. you know, with the Patrick O'Brien books. Once you've read the first couple, you know all the main characters, you know his yeah. style of writing, you get the sense of humor or, or lack of humor, depending on the books. You, so you can, so picking up the next one and the next one, the next one becomes a lot easier. With Dance for the Music of Time, I mean, that was, a, that was an extraordinary book because everybody aged as well. That was, if, if you know, you don't know what that's about, it was, uh, starts in the 1920s, or pre-First World War, I think, and takes you up to the 1970s. And, and yeah. the same main characters drop in and out of it and new characters come in and out so there was there was a, a sort of a fundamental continuity throughout the series but they all aged and i do like i've done a couple of books like that where people age there was one based on a diary i can't remember the name i shouldn't go into that but it was like oh is that any human heart yes william boyd yes yeah I didn't realize that was you. Oh, I haven't listened. I bought this years ago. Any, any Human Heart is one of my favorite novels. And I bought the audiobook years ago, and I never listened to it. Don't, don't listen to it now. We're in the middle of a podcast. <laughs> yes, I know. I'll have to start later. Actually, I have to finish Dance to the Music of Time first. Yeah, yeah. But the, 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 yes, preparation. But even, you know, very short books can require an awful lot of prep. I, I tend to, um, it, it's, if it's a mystery... If it's a mystery, those are the ones that take the most prep. It, well, different types of prep, because you've, you've got nonfiction books, so there's lots of names and research you have to look up. But if you've got, in terms of fiction books, fictional stories, uh, the mysteries, the murder mysteries, because you need to know who the bad guys are and who the good guys are. In a, in a nonfiction book, if it's a history of World War II, I've got a pretty good idea who the good guys are and who the bad guys are and how it ends. <laughs> but, but with a mystery, I, I don't want to be surprised to find that somebody was pretending to be someone else in the early chapter. You know, you've got to know that this guy's Irish. Plus, I imagine you have to be very careful with plot twists and red herrings. You can't give too much authority, uh, to, you know, to one or the other. You have to walk a fine line. But doesn't, doesn't that mean that there's a subtle amount of foreshadowing in your reading? That if I'm listening to the third chapter, the way you're reading a certain character might give me clues as to whether he's good or bad in the yes, end. Yes, but Kirk, I'm a, I'm a good actor. So, okay. <laughs> I like to think so. But there is that. That is 
when uh, somebody wants to become a narrator or, or is beginning as a narrator and, and everybody says, oh, you've got to pre-read the book. You've always, always, always got to pre-read the book. Um, I tend to scan the books. I don't, I, I mean, we are sight reading anyway, but I also, I don't want to know everything. I want to be discovering along with the listener. I think it's important that I know the basics of the story that I can I know the characters who's coming who's going whatever and as I say who's who the bad guys are at the end but I I like to be surprised along the way too so I won't I won't read every single word the only time the only times I have read every single word of the book is when I was flying to New York and I was sitting there in a studio with the producer and the director and the engineer right. because then I'm wasting people's time if I have to stop and go hang on what was this guy doing what because uh, that happens you know, I can sit here and do that and I can go back. And I do go back and I re-record little stretches and stuff and I'll insert them before I send the finished book off. Just to riff on, once again, this Anthony Pohl series, which if you haven't read it or heard it, this may be the most English series of books I've ever read. This is produced by Audible themselves. So Audible has become an audio book publisher in the past few years. How is this changing the landscape? <laughs> yes. Well... Uh, I hinted at that earlier. The, what happened was Audible was the sort of the download place for all these other publishers. That, that um, when um, Don Katz began Audible, I understand that um, whether it was a, a promise written in a contract or not, I don't think so. I think it was just sort of a handshake that, you know, I'm never going to get in the business. So I'm not competing with you guys. It was Blackstone and books on tape and so on. So it's easy. Give me, you know, the download rights and, and that won't be a problem. And then Amazon, I don't know which happened first. Amazon took them over or they started doing their own books. But it all happened at the same time. And Amazon has become the uh, the monopoly, if you like. And there are a lot of other smaller companies that are now trying to compete. But by the time that happened, it was too late. Audible is, has become the place. And they do a great job. I mean, it's fantastic. They do. Yeah. But, um, but then they also started producing their own books. And then Amazon bought them. And Amazon has this the rights to so many books. And they unloaded thousands of books into the marketplace. They said they brought in all these very small producers, people who'd barely produced any books, and said, we need these books done. We need all these books done. We need to get as many audiobooks out there as possible. There's only, there were only so many narrators, and so a lot of, with experience. And it's not people think it's just a nice voice, and you don't need technical experience. But you you need to know so much to be able to narrate an audiobook, and it's the stamina. I think you mentioned earlier. There's there's so much that that's involved. And what happened? And I don't want to malign too many people, but but there are a lot of people who shouldn't have been narrators, narrated books, uh, and they narrated books. <laughs> back in their garage. Now, I started out like that, so I don't want to sound hypocritical, but a lot of people are doing that without any sense of the sound quality. And there were small companies who were paying narrators $25 an hour, $50 an hour, which sounds like a lot if you're thinking minimum wage is $15 an hour. Yeah, but it's not because that you're talking $25 or $50 an hour of finished product. A finished product. And if you're a new narrator, you can take three, four, five hours to get that. Plus, you've got exactly. all the prep work, you've got everything else. So they're getting... They were they were doing a terrible job bringing in people who shouldn't be narrating, and it affected the industry as a whole in that people would go to Audible and they'd see books by 
famous actors, me, uh, all the other narrators that have been around for years. And alongside them, there'll be these, you know, Joe Smith books, narrated books, that, and there's no comparison. I mean, they're, they're, they look the same. So you buy the Joe Smith one thinking you're getting a quality product, and it's terrible. Well, you're buying it mostly for the author, although, as as Doug said earlier, your name is marketed, and and it's very clear that people who are regular audiobook listeners buy books just as much for the narrator as they do for the author. It's certainly become that way, and I think that's wonderful. I think it's great. Um, I, I'm... I think the publishers took a while to recognize that, but I think they do now. I, I think, um, it's, I mean, as I say, back in the day, they didn't care what name you used and different companies, whatever. But now that I think they recognize that, that we have a value. I, I understand in Germany, they actually have their, their audio book uh, prize giving is on award ceremonies on TV and they're superstars over there. I didn't know that. That's really odd because, you know, we, we listen to different performances of musical pieces by good orchestras, better orchestras, best orchestras, why wouldn't people have the same feeling about the way they want to be read to, you know, and you want a, a, a quality uh, voice to listen to? So I'm, I'm surprised that the publishers didn't realize that early on. No, well, they've come around to it. But I think the, what, what, what's happened with the industry after that, it, it was a few years, and I think Amazon learned their lesson. I mean, there was one particular instance that affected me was a big publisher with a New York Times bestselling author, done the first part of what was going to be a trilogy, and they gave it to a small company somewhere on the West Coast. I won't. I try not to name names. But they gave it to somebody, and they paid them $50 for finished hour, and the product was horrifying. Uh, the fans were up in arms about it because every character sounded like a surfer dude. And this guy was an actor not, you know, in a small company, but he, was, he, he, he obviously didn't, hadn't done audiobooks, had no experience. And the author put his foot down and said, I want Simon Vance next time. So I did the second and the third in the series, and the publisher said, no, there's no way we can afford to go back and redo the first book. But eventually they did, so I went back and redid the first book, so now I've done it. But that, that was the kind of thing that was happening. They were trying to save money. And and uh, there were a lot of lesser companies, and it it, it rather spurred the uh, the union. The SAG-AFTRA came into the industry. They had a previous, they they had been on the periphery. They were in L.A. and New York, but nowhere else. And home narrators uh, were sort of looked down on. And they they their studio they had a studio rate. So if you went to the studio, you got paid by the hour um, rather than by the finished hour. And and the union had not really thought this out that if you were a bad narrator and took three hours to do one hour, you were doing better than a good narrator who'd do it in an hour and a half. So the union came in, and, and, and now the industry is actually pretty solidly unionized. And these other companies that were trying to pay narrators $50 an hour and, and less have, have, um, have signed on to union contracts. So we're much happy about that. And I think, uh, you know, the cream has risen to the top, and there are some fantastic new narrators out there who came up through that melee of uh, six or eight years ago. And um, things are looking good for the industry right now. It's really, it's looking much, much healthier, I think. I mean, it's been growing constantly for 25 years, but I think it's looking more, looking healthier now than it has done for years. But as you say, there are some narrators who are horrible. And when I go on Audible and I see a book that interests me and I click the little sample button, I know in 30 seconds whether I want to listen to that book. And and in some cases, it's it's just shocking how tone deaf some of these narrators seem and on the other hand, you know, you'll come across someone you don't know, and all of a sudden it's, yes, this sounds like a real book. It's it's like the difference between a fluent musician or someone who's only been playing piano for a year as they're playing, you know, too much in time with their the metronome in their head, that kind of thing. They don't have the freedom and the rhythm 
that someone does when they're experienced. It is it is extraordinary, yes. And I, I think a lot of people don't understand what is involved. You know, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just the pretty voice. It's being able to lift the words off the page. I described it years ago as singing. I mean, we, we sort of sing the words. Sure. It, it, there's a music to it. It's the wonderful combination of a good writer. This, this is the thing about the books I love, all good writers. There are writers now that I absolutely adore. Guy Gavriel Kay, fantastic writer. I love his writing. It's so easy to read and lift off the page. And you've another writer, like Brent Weeks, who writes uh, fantasy books. I love his writing. Great sense of humor. And, and the storytelling, the plots, the people act logically, sensibly. And these things are all so important. And as a narrator, it's a gift. Whereas a lot of writing that is a bit flat and, and to try and bring it to life, that's, I think, where the real talent shows in a narrator. If you can bring a, a, a pedestrian text to life, um, I think that's the best thing that we can do. So there's one thing we see often in audiobooks, and that's books that are read by the author. And in the best of case, these can be extraordinary. And in the worst of cases, these can be just total snooze fests. I, I recently bought a book. I won't mention the title. The book itself was very interesting, but the author, who is actually a BBC, I think he does documentaries on the BBC, it's a scientific topic, is just so aggressive the way he reads the book, and it's just like he's 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 just forcing his ideas, and I gave up after about two or three hours. On the other hand, when you get an author who can read his book well, it's just miraculous, And and the best example is Julian Barnes, his book, Nothing to be Frightened of, or Levels of Life, these are just, they're, they're very moving books to start with, but he, he just has the perfect voice. In fact, if he hadn't been such a great author, he could have been a perfect narrator for audiobooks. Yeah, I, I agree with you totally. I mean, if you can find a, an author who can read his own books, I mean, that's just a, a wonderful gift. I mean, I've, I know, you know Neil Gaiman, uh, I, I've met him many times, and uh, I I'm so admire what he's able to do. He's got a very idiosyncratic way of, of reading, but it's so natural, and it brings... And as the author, you know the work, you know, so solidly, so perfectly. Um but yes, I mean, I think there's a lot of authors who read the sort of self-help books themselves, and that's fine. You kind of look beyond the performance to the text. You kind of you you're not going for the performance. I think the difficulty is when you have a a fictional book and the author tries to read their own book. I think uh, you know, I, and I remember the battles that people like I talked to friends at Blackstone, the battles they'd have with authors saying, and I want to read my own book. I want to read my own book. And then they'd have, okay, do a sample. Now put it against the sample from professional narrators. Here, three or four, try these. And they'd listen and go, oh, right. Yes, there's more to it than just reading the words, isn't there? So, yeah. But um, no, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of of authors who can read their own books. but There aren't enough. There aren't yeah. enough. Well, actually, I'm quite pleased there aren't enough because that leaves the work for yes, the rest of us. Yes, exactly. So... This has been extremely interesting. Before we close, what's your favorite recent book that you've narrated? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Um, and that's been published already, obviously. Well, there's, there's two. There's uh, two that came up that are actually older classics. One was The Sea, The Sea by Iris Murdoch. She was, um, she she won the uh, the Booker Prize for it a couple of decades ago. The Sea, The Sea. I, I love that book. That's that's the kind of book that I because it was it was written from the perspective of, of um, you're in one person's mind. You mentioned Hilary Mantel's Bring Up the Bodies. You're in Thomas Cromwell's mind in that. And I, I love that, that I am, I am 
embodying him. And the same thing with the sea. The sea. The guy was a bit of an, I use the word asshole, but it was a really, he was a delightful asshole. But, but I love the sea, the sea. Um, the, the unconsoled, Kazuo Ishiguro. Tantor got hold of the rights of that. It was the one that hadn't been published. When he won the Nobel Prize, uh, I got a call and it was like, I think the call was on the Monday. Can you do this book? And I said, well, I can move some stuff about. And I think I started recording on the Wednesday or Thursday of that week, which is unusual. And I had it finished about a week later. And it's and it's more than 19 hours long. Yeah, yeah. It's an extraordinary book. Um, fascinating, fascinating book. There was one I wanted to mention, a, a small one. It's only seven, seven eight hours. I, I don't know if it's available in the UK, but it's called In Every Moment We Are Still Alive by Tom Malmquist. It's translated from the Swedish. And it's a fascinating, it's a kind of a, I think it's written as a diary, if I remember correctly. Um, And it's based on his, on a real, on what happened to him. His wife dies uh, in childbirth or just after childbirth. And it's his recovery from that. Um, It sounds terribly depressing, but it's very inspiring and, and very moving. In every moment we're alive, we are still alive. Well, we'll have links to all of these books in the show notes. Simon, thanks so much for spending time talking to us. This has been fascinating. I look forward to going back and listening to some more of your books when I'm finished. Ah, you're very welcome. Please do. <laughs> All right, we're going to return to the realm of music now and present our next tracks. Kirk, what's on your agenda? My next track this week is a new recording by pianist Murray Pariah. It's two Beethoven piano sonatas, sonata number 29, the Hammerklavier, and sonata number 14, the Moonlight Sonata. Everyone recognizes the Moonlight Sonata. It's the one that gets in all the soundtracks of movies. But the Hammerklavier, the 29th, is arguably Beethoven's most tempestuous piano sonata, and particularly the fourth movement, which is pretty much like heavy metal on a piano. I've seen Murray Pariah perform live in Birmingham, which is about an hour from here, twice in the past few years. And he performed this sonata in a recital last year where he performed some Mozart and some Brahms. And it was simply breathtaking to hear him play this live. It's a long work. It's 40, 45 minutes. At the end of the performance, you could see he was drained. He was sweating. He was exhausted. It it takes so much energy. I think he even said at some point that for many years he wouldn't perform this live because it was just too big a work to perform. And and now he has been touring. And while he's recorded it in the past, this is a, a new recording on the new label that he's with, Deutsche Grammophon. It's a majestic work, and I strongly recommend, if you like Beethoven, checking out this recording. Doug? I was reminded on Twitter uh, this week that it's the 44th anniversary this month of the release of Steely Dan's Pretzel Logic album. It is their third album. It's the first of three albums of theirs that I really like. In fact, I really can't tell Pretzel Logic from Katie Lied and The Royal Scam. But this album was the first one where it really seems like Steely Dan has figured out how to use a studio how to write the songs that they want to write, and the direction that they wanted to go in. This is also the album that is the last of the original Steely Dan lineup, not only with uh, Walter Becker and Donald Fagan, but Skunk Baxter and Denny Diaz on guitars and Jim Hodder on drums, although Jim Hodder does not play drums on this album. He's relegated to backup vocals. This is where they started to use studio musicians. So on drums, you've got Jim Gordon and Jeff Porcaro, and you've got people like David Page who, along with Porcaro, would form Toto a few years later. 
Dean Parks is on it, Wilton Felder, Chuck Rainey, Victor Feldman. These are all prestigious L.A. studio musicians. And it seems like this is the album by Steely Dan that said, we're not just another band from L.A. We've got an idea of where we want to go, and it's jazz and pop, and we're going to bring elements into pop music that really haven't been there before. And Charlie Parker is all over this album. Not only is there a song called Parker's Band, but there are actually some riffs from some of his compositions that they've kind of cribbed from. There's a song by Duke Ellington, East St. Louis Toodaloo is on here. And this, of course, is the album with Ricky Don't Lose That Number. So it was it was a, a very popular album at the time. In fact, lots of critics believe that this is their best album. I don't know if it's their best, but it's definitely worth a listening to because this is where their sound solidified. And this is the direction they took, if not for the next two albums, for the rest of the albums in their career. Steely Dan, Pretzel Logic is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.